welcome to episode 15 of The Coriolis Effect. They have what you need, we have what you want. I'm Matthew. And I'm Dave. And I just have to say first things first, that it's great to be back. It feels, at least, that we've been away a little bit, because we've done very short podcasts um, with all the recording stuff that we've had. So it's fabulous to be back in the chat with a full list of things to talk about today. So what we've got coming up, our usual world of gaming little piece where I want to talk a little bit about the the new stuff that's come out from Free Oligan on Forbidden Lands, which oh, yes. they sent out a couple of days ago, a few pages on talents and the like. And I thought um, we might want to talk a little bit about that. Then we had a discussion and had a look at Nibiru. So uh, I think we want to have a little talk about uh, about Nibiru, new game that's coming out for Kickstarter later this year. Then, if you remember last time, Matthew, I set you an exam question. The Syndicate, are they all bad? You did. And I'm looking forward yes, to... Yes, and I have the answer. Shall I say it now? No, no. It'll just take a word. Okay. <laughs> Let's hold the tension, shall we? Then once you've proven to me that they are not all bad, or they are all bad... No, well, they're all bad. Then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've blown this it. This is the shortest essay you've ever seen. <laughs> okay, sorry guys, we've, we're going to scrub the Syndicate one because Matt's done that already in the introduction. No, I've got plenty to say, <laughs> but cool. yeah, they're all bad. Cool. It's also been a long time since uh, I talked anything about the Spectral Corsair campaign. We've had a lot of scenarios, so I'm not going to run through it blow by blow, but I'll give a little bit of an update on that and some of the key and interesting things that have arisen over the last few scenarios. From that, I have a talent of the episode, which uh, we'll talk about later on. And then we just wanted to finish off our reflections of Dragon Meat, which obviously was feeling like a long time ago now. But we had a really nice interview with Lloyd Guyan from, from Modiphius, and play that a bit later on. He's got some really interesting things to say. And then we had an interview with Federico Sones, uh, the brain behind Nibiru. Once we've gone through all of that, Matthew, I think you're going to give us a little bit of an update on what's happened in the Mukfar campaign. And that's our... Pa- yeah, although that's pretty much the last thing we'll do. Um, I thought we were going to talk about Lloyd and Nibiru a little bit earlier than you've just said, but um, you might have an older version of the running order. Uh, I think I've got... Have we? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well... Um, Listeners, don't worry about the running order. We'll get to it when we get to it. If I've yeah, it'll be right in the podcast notes as well. I think I've read out the wrong list. Then maybe, um, <laughs> but hey, that's what happens. This is well. I was going to say this is that's, live. That, that's the fun of us being live. I mean, obviously <laughs> not live, but we're recording it live, and I'm not going to go back and record four minutes. No, and stuff we're going to do this in one take, it. like we always do. <laughs> we never make mistakes. We never make mistakes. So yeah, just looking at my list of oh, gaming kickstarters. We differ. Oh yeah, we're doing. Yeah, we're we're going to talk about Lloyd straight after the world of gaming. Before we talk about the syndicate, Lloyd before. and the bureau come before the syndicate. Yeah, so we get that right finally. But yeah. world of gaming. So I've had a yeah. little read through some of the stuff that um has recently come out from Free League. Yeah, they came out what two or three days ago. Yeah, not long. Not long. Recording. And there's a couple of things in there which I really liked. So, obviously, they're using the idea of tiered talents. Where did they get that idea well, from, Dave? I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my mind. Um, I, I remember uh, uh, Ricard and Troy are saying, partially inspired by us. So, he's obviously not going yeah. to admit this entirely from our idea. And it yeah. might it might yeah, not have been. It is. They may... <laughs> I think we'd like to claim that. 
wouldn't we? Yeah. Uh, you know, even if it's not true. Sorry, Ricard. Um, yeah. But we are officially co-authors of Forbidden Lands. <laughs> <laughs> but to, to to steal a phrase of yours, Matthew, that was my idea. That was your idea. <laughs> it was my idea. Woo! I can claim credit for something. Excellent. Anyway, I was started reading through the talents. And the first talents I came to were magical ones. Um, and it just said, on the three talents, you can you can cast level one spells. You can cast level two spells. You can cast level three spells. And I, I immediately went, ah, oh, is that it? This is a bit be, boring. This is a bit pants. But then I read through the rest of it. And actually, that does make sense, I guess, for a caster. And some of the other ones are really interesting. And uh, we're obviously not going to go through them all. But there are two I really wanted to... Two or three I wanted to pull out. Now, there's a Berserker talent. Yes. I remember you saying that you wanted to put out a Berserker talent for, for Coriolis before... Before they bought this We one saw out. what the Forbidden Lands one was looking like. Have you had a chance to yeah. read it? I have indeed. Of course, it's the first thing I looked at. <laughs> Sad git that I am. It's quite different from yours, isn't it? Yeah. In fact, it's, it's significantly less powered. Yeah. The, the, the interesting thing, of course, is... The damage mechanics are a little bit different in this game in that your hit points are are no longer a combination of both your physical stats, uh, any one of your physical stats, or, yeah, e- either one of your physical stats is a separate form of damage, or as they call it, and I like the change in this game, they call it misery. Yeah. Um, and I'm all for that. Well, it's going back to the, it's going back to the Mutant Year Zero model. Of taking damage. Right, it was like that as well in Mutant Year Zero, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, and I'm just, I'm, sorry, I'm just flicking through it again trying to find it because I, I did want to dissect it. It's on page 66. So it's, Thank you very much. What page am I on? So it's talking about unleashing primal rage when you're broken by misery. Yes. So again, the idea of uh, getting broken and... Uh, and and then coming back from broken is exactly the same as my berserker talent. I'd like to point out. Except Correctly. it's uh, it's they only they only gift you back the number of points equal to your level in berserker, which will be maximum of three. Whereas yeah. you, you were gifting Andy back uh, all what, of them. He's, he's straight, yeah, all of them. Yeah. Well, I haven't I haven't gifted them back to Andy because he doesn't have that talent. Uh, this is just something that came out of that conversation. That's true. But um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, potentially you get a lot more back with the way I'm doing it. But of course. In a way, you know, you may only have three points in one of those physical talents anyway when you're rolling up. That's true. Those, yeah. You know, you only go up to a maximum of five. So, uh, so if you like, you know, if you double double that three, then it's a bit similar to mine. I was thinking. <laughs> okay. Um, oh right, you've and there's some other effects as well. So during your rage, you are immune to any attempts to manipulate you, and if broken during a berserker rage, obviously, like mine, you can't be, you can't keep berserking. Once you're broken a second time in the middle of your berserker thing, down you, you go. Broken. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think I had some more sort of um, after effects as well. Yes, it kind of last. You, you had the kind of cool down period as well, didn't you? Where for six hours or however long afterwards, you were going around yeah. like the like the Hulk, just grumping yeah. at everything, um, not being able to interact really with people on a on a sensible level. Other than, yeah. other than punching them, of course. <laughs> if that's a sen- <laughs> Which is the only level there is. If that's it? a sensible level, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah, so the Berserker talent, I'm glad you brought that one up, but you mentioned you had another one you wanted to yeah, talk well, about. Well, there's a couple, and it, well, I think 
having read through them, what it did was pull out some of the, the look and feel of the game for me. So there's one called Quartermaster, which is down on page 71. And it's talking about getting bonuses when you make camp. And making camp in capitals, like it must be a skill or something, which is yeah. clearly a really important skill that you're going to need in Forbidden Lands. Because, you know, you're going to be out in the wilds overnight. You really need to be able to make a good camp. Yeah, let, let us remind ourselves that this is trying to recreate the sandbox hex crawl of um, fantasy campaigns that we, we may well have participated in in the early 80s ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Before we ran out of time and started going straight to the story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah. But I'm really up for this because, of course, what what it's doing is making sure that the hex crawl itself is a story by by adding these layers of complication and, you know, by making camp being... A thing you you need to do every night, and yeah. that might, things might go wrong. So uh... it it brings a bit of a feel, I th- I think, but perhaps more in a in a in a deeper way actually in the game's mechanics itself, to, um, to the way that I've been running the Spectral Corsair campaign, where the journey is the story, it's not the destination, mm. and this again feels very much more like the journey is at least as important, if not as important, as the destination in terms of the story in the game. Um, there's another yeah. one that was similar to that as well, which is called Master of the Hunt, which is a talent for, oh, I guess it's, oh, I can't see here now, which is, again, it's talking about bonuses to your hunt roles when you're out on journeys. So obviously, you might not carry all your food with you if you're going a long way. Um, and again, this one just evokes that feel of the game, which I think is really, really exciting. Yeah, and I've... there's other ones like that as well, that uh, Fisher, which, you know, mm. uh, obviously gives you some bonuses when you're fishing um <laughs> and uh i could imagine some more uh shall we say munchkiny sort of players might go what a special skill for fishing you know what, 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 what <laughs> yeah. I want a, a fishing feat for yeah. but i got a sneaking suspicion that all well, well we'll see in play how useful they all are in comparison but i i quite like the idea of the campaign that these rules are forming so yeah absolutely I'm really looking forward to this i was interested to find the builder talent as well which again is talking about modifications when you're building your stronghold so yeah i've already got ideas of characters in my head maybe a bit stereotypical of you know, your your hard-bitten dwarf who's a builder who looks after the stronghold kind of thing but yeah if they keep on with this kind of uh, you know, depth and get, getting it right, I think, the game's going to be brilliant. And I'm even more excited about playing it than I was before. And I was quite excited about playing it before. Yeah. And we ought to check... Andy wants to run it, doesn't he? So we ought to check with him what he's thinking, whether he's reading any of these. But uh, yeah, maybe we'll get him in the hammam uh, at some point in a future episode. I think we should. Moving on, other things in the world of gaming. I just wanted to do a shout-out for the Simbaroo Monster Codex where um, they haven't issued anything extra other than a, oh, we got away with one, because they, they they clearly spotted an error in the formatting of one of their databases, which would have sent everything to addresses that didn't exist. So, <laughs> so they've said, oh, sorry, handy. sorry for the delay. Uh, there was a problem, uh, and we fixed it. But really, still really looking forward to that. And I just wanted to use this as an opportunity to uh, do a shout out for the Simbroom actual plays that we are beginning to put out. Uh, the first one went out uh, yesterday, yesterday. Um, from the day of recording, which is what 26th of January, I think we are now. But yeah, so if you're interested in Simbroom and interested in uh, having a listen 
then go and pick that one up. The The first episode, there'll be three from this particular actual play, but the first episode is not, not heavy on the rules, but it does obviously explain the rules a bit at the start and then obviously the setting. So go and have a listen. And Dave, earlier on, you, you mentioned Nibiru, and Nibiru is kind of in our world of gaming slot, but because it's something that we found out about at Dragon Meat, I think we should talk about it in a bit more detail and play the interview we made at Dragon Meat after we have this episode's Players in the Hammam, which features Lloyd Gian, who works for Modiphius, and is a little bit of a star of the internet, if, you, <laughs> if you've seen him GMing on there as well. And um, a few months ago, asked me for some pre-generated characters, because at the last minute he wanted to run uh, a game of Coriolis for his Modiphius colleagues. And so when we saw him at Dragon Meat, I was really keen to ask him how it went. I'm interviewing Lloyd. Look, on Hi. borrowed equipment. Yeah. Okay. Hey, don't forget to give me a shout-out. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Okay, well, it's uh, an unusual players in the Hammam today because we're not in the Hammam. We're here at Dragon Meat and we're recording on Callum's equipment from uh, Callum from Le Rollist's podcast. And I'm with one of my favourite GMs. And that's Lloyd Guyan. Lloyd, say hi. Hello, everyone. My name is Lloyd Jan, and it's nice to hear from you all. <laughs> and uh, I, I've played with you online, and uh, you played with me uh, when we played Firefly a couple of uh, years ago. But a few, a few months ago, I sent you some characters because you were running a game of Coriolis. Yes, I had a quick game of Coriolis and went to run some friends, but I wasn't that well-versed in the law. And I know the Coriolis effect is really good at getting the law and the world and the rules and everything else put together. And although I work for Modifius, it does help to have a little bit of like some kind of information to help you out a little bit before, before I had a time. So I thought I'd send you a message because I was like, what the heck? Cool. I, know, I know, homeboy. I was asking. What else? <laughs> so, yeah, who are you running that game for and how did it go? I was running that game for specifically for members of staff at the Modifius office yeah. because we hadn't had a chance to play the game together. So we had a nice short little game okay. where... Basically, the players crash land onto one of the um, breathable planets and were chased around the area by local hicks. Brilliant. And what did what do you think your players thought of it? So, I believe the players had a bit of a mixed reaction to it because, one, it was the first game, but I played a lot of immediate rest games, so it was a little bit in between stuff. What makes the game so strong is the relation to how everyone is tied to the religions and the... The nine uh, can't pronounce the icons. Words. The nine icons. Yeah. So I was trying to bring that out a lot with the way people were acting and what, what icons they believed in and all of that. And that that takes some getting used to if you don't haven't read the book and you don't really understand the law because there's a lot of stuff to do with all that put together. But once you get that out of the way and you get that bit sorted out, once they go into the mood of things and they understood what they were supposed to do and where they were doing it, the game just flowed. And that's what made the game so strong. That's brilliant. And um, what do they think of the dice mechanic? A lot of people, particularly if they're new to the game, struggle a bit with rolling a whole bunch of dice and getting no sixes. Wait, do you want me to be honest about this on this class? Yeah, I want you to be honest. Okay, God. <laughs> Sweet Lord Jesus. Oh, my God, Jesus Christ. I have never had such bad luck in a game in my <laughs> entire life. You can roll, like, 12 D6s, and you're like, why is there not a single six going on up in here? There is no... You know what? You would think getting one dice extra to add on top of that will make it good. you think that. Mate, one of the... Nope. Mm, mm, not a... Mm, mm. You need... 
the, the, the ratio I've discovered, right, is that if you want to get a good chance of anything, anything at all, you got to roll at least six dice. Like, that's like, that's like your, okay, maybe, I, like, I, I can't begin what the percentages are. There's somewhere out there. But it's counteracted by the praying to the icons mechanic. Because the second you have a chance to re-roll, numbers get a lot easier, things yeah. get a lot more simpler. Every single dice you've added together makes everything make sense. And you're passing the GM that token that makes them use it. So they, the, sorry, they don't make them use it. That give them a token that basically goes, hey, GM, I have asked the gods to help me in this scene. Make me, make me pay for that later. Yeah. And because of that, we had them running across a piranha-infested bog, which cool. was... Which was you spending darkness points yeah, to make their well, life hell. A mechanical piranha-infested <laughs> bog yeah. on speeder bikes. It was a very hard moment, all right? Yeah. <laughs> I was really feeling the whole, like, whole, like, weird alien part of the game, and it just really worked. So the mechanical piranhas worked out great for that. And that's where the game really shines. It's, I wouldn't say it's the best version of the free league game I've played. The law is the best version of any free league. Like 10 out of 10, like, darn, that's beautiful. Everyone loves that. Game itself and a dark fate, I'm kind of back and forth about. But the minute you give that to a token to a GM, and a GM uses it in a sensible and fantastic way to escalate the situation, the game shines. That's where it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Just like you did. Um, to be honest, <laughs> I mean, have you seen me? Like, oh, let's run games. <laughs> I've seen you. Okay. Wow. Dude, I'm, it's my podcast, man. Come on, help me out. <laughs> help me out, bro. Come on. He's going to edit all this stuff out later. Like, seriously, nah. wow. I'm preparing for a segue. Just. Oh, shit. Uh, speaking of segues, I'd like to pass it over to my homeboy over oh, no, here. I've got a couple more questions before we hand over Damn. to... <laughs> So you were saying it's not the best version of the Year Zero engine. Which is the game you prefer in terms of mechanics? Tales of the Loop. Tales of the Loop. I Excellent mean, like, this choice. isn't hard. Like, yeah. come on. Like, really? <laughs> really? I'm literally giving a talk about it today. Oh, are you? Like, 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 like Tales of the Loop is so good. Like, it's incredible. So, so when are you doing that? Oh, I'm doing it at 5 o'clock. Um, uh, right, I think the we gaming? might have to stay. Maybe I can persuade. Great. Now, why are we talking talk about, about this on the podcast? <laughs> can we not do this on the podcast? We can do that bit on the podcast. Just one last thing. Go for it. Um, we're also talking quite a lot about Simbaroom recently. Yes. That's another Modifius game. Yes. Have they asked you to run a game of that? I have already run a few games of Simbaroom. Yeah. Simbaroom is a game that takes a while to get your head around. Once again, a game massively fleshed in law. Like, the law is like, like I mean, like, I like to say fleshed in law. The model of the law like, basically puts you on the goddamn ground and slams you into the floor over and over and over and over and over again. But it's a game that's also fairly simple to run because of the way the dice mechanics work. Yeah. Once you get past the character generation, which, by the way, is the best part of the game. Yeah, well, I Pantation love the character is generation. the best part of the game, like yeah. straight up right there. Yeah. Once you get past that, and you can get your head around the penalties and bonuses of what dice is supposed to do. If you get your head just around that corner, you got some yeah. room, easy. There's a reason why it sells so well. It's because the game is actually quite all right. It's good fun. It's not as, it's not as simple as I'd like it to be. Mm-hmm. But it's not complex enough that I'd lose my head over it. Yeah. Also, it's deadly as hell. <laughs> oh, my oh, God. Yes. I'm like, really? Really? I'm in, okay, so like, I'm playing this game, right? I'm playing this game, and we've been surrounded by, like, like, like goblins. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go out and I'm going to challenge the lead, like, the lead fight, the lead goblin to, like, a fight to the, to the death. Like, you know, free this village. Okay, cool. I'm going for it. I'm like, I'm doing I'm like, guys, seriously, kill her with an arrow. Like, I, I do not want to fight this. 
I am literally, oh man, hey, what's up, that funk? I am literally at the edge of my seat throughout the fight because it is that close to losing. Oh, everything yeah. is everything is like just on the edge. The game is incredible when it comes to the combat, but you do have to think everything tactically. Yeah. If you, you have to fake dying to get away from being killed, do that. <laughs> That's what I should have done. That's what I should have done. Think tactically and think very logically for every fight. Don't go in there going, I swing my sword, I swing my sword. Well, that is brilliant. And our time is up for this uh, segment in the Hamam. No, it's not up. It's not up. I, I, I was just trying to think. I'm trying to get those two guys who are into sci-fi role-playing games yeah. to go interview the author of a game which you mastered for me. Nibiru. Nibiru? Oh, so, oh, you guys haven't spoken to the, the guy who wrote Nibiru yet? No, we'll, we'll, we'll find time Federico to talk to Nibiru. Why, why are you even talking to me? <laughs> Federico's downstairs. That game is so you. <laughs> okay. Well, dude, like, get, you're the second person to say dude, that. Because Callum said dude, that. Cancel it. Stop this broadcast right now. We're going to go right there. We're going to go. Just, we're done. We're done. Cancel it. It's over. Nibiru right now. Just done. We're done. Finished. We'll see you later. <laughs> So, yeah, well, as you, as you can see, he's a bit of a whirlwind, yeah. uh, is Lloyd. Uh, and he's he's full of enthusiasm for gaming, though. And that's, you know, I first, uh, a few years ago, I went to Dragon Meat and I ran the Firefly role-playing game. And he was my Captain Mal. Uh-huh. And uh, it was it was a scenario that, that you've done in a number of game systems, I think, with me before, which is, um, I have to convert it for Coriolis, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, which is Hell's Ditch. Yeah. Um, but he was a great Captain Mal in that, and he, he's really fun to watch. If you if you see him on YouTube, he's got a YouTube channel where he where he GMs games online. He he's great fun to watch and full of enthusiasm for almost everything he plays, as as we saw. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that even with that enthusiasm, uh, even Lloyd complained about the dice mechanics in Coriolis and uh, <laughs> struggling to uh, to get a six, which we've all felt that pain. <laughs> yeah. haven't, haven't we so uh but um you know he uh, you know the, the whole mechanics itself with the re-roll and everything clearly it works really well even if you do have to suffer a bit of frustration once in a while yeah i i i see i know lots of players balk at the one i think this idea of throwing a lot of dice and not getting any success is you know it's a very real feeling but frankly the dice rolling I'm convinced as a player when I play it is a lot better than rolling a d20. I think I agree with that. Yeah, because <laughs> you you know, and it's almost. I think my feeling about a d20 is almost diametrically opposed to people's feelings about a big dice ball. Is that I don't mind if I've thrown a lot of dice and not got any successes, then at least I've thrown a lot of dice. Whereas you've only got one chance to get under or over your target number depending on the system and and it's just one clunk of the dice and that's it and if you if you've got the wrong number you're screwed particularly in simba room as you mentioned well in simba room i mean you do get a re-roll mechanic in simba room but it's very very costly so you either spend a point of experience and you're not going to get yeah. that many in a game or you take a point of permanent corruption and for for those of you who don't know simba room the game no, you don't want to do either of those things because they're they're both bad things to to do. So you're not re-rolling every no. second or third roll. You know, you might re-roll one in a game you know, yeah. at, a, at a push. And again, you know, when you're when you're making a re-roll in in Coriolis, you're re-rolling as many dice as were in your pool in the first place if you want to. Whereas you're just rolling one dice with an equally one in twenty chance of yeah. getting well, not one in twenty chance of getting the number you want, but you know. The, you, there is just one number that can come up. Yes, absolutely. It might not be a number that you want. 
<laughs> no, exactly. No, no. I, I think I agree with you there, Matt, on on that point. Um, I also thought interesting that it was very clear where Lloyd was planting his flag in terms of his favourite free league game with Tales from the Loop, which interestingly yeah. enough we are going to run tomorrow. Well, I'm going to run a game for you and Tony tomorrow. Where I can't kill the We've kids. got to see what all the fuss is about, haven't we? Well, we do. And and having gone through the book in a bit more detail in advance of running it tomorrow, yeah, I'm quite excited, actually. I, I can see... It's a different kind of game. There, it's, a, it's a more narratively driven game. There's more power in the player's hands to drive the narrative. But it's mm. it looks... Yeah. Well, we are intending on recording it. So if it's any good, then we might stick that out as an actual play so people can... Hear me not killing Make kids. their own mind up. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's really interesting you say it's more narratively driven because uh, I later on saw Lloyd speaking at uh, an indie game seminar group. And it's the second year he's been on there. And there was a bit of joking last time he was on there because he works with Modifius, who, well, I always think almost every game company except for um, Wizards of the Coast, who are part of Hasbro and um, FF. G fantasy flight games who are who are part of Asmodee or every other publisher is actually an independent publisher. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so they were giving them a bit of a hard time about working for Modifius, but I still count them as independents, even if they're one of the biggest and most successful ones that we've got in the country at the moment. Yeah. They're not Games Workshop, are they? No, well, that's for sure. I think they might like to be, but they're not yet. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, and so... This time he was on there again, and I think he caused a little bit of controversy early on in the session when everybody was saying, this is the favourite thing that's happened to me in the last year in the world of indie gaming. And he brought out his copy of Tales from the Loop and said what a brilliant indie game it was. Yeah, And I think there was a, a bit of clenched teeth among the audience there, looking at that lovely big, you know, multi-hundred page hardback volume and thinking, well, that's not an indie game. But of course, <laughs> no. indie games are narratively driven. And I think that's the point he was making, is that here is, you know, uh, what you might say is a more traditional, mechanically minded game. And I'm reminded, actually, that, you know, that's one of the design uh philosophies that the guys from Free League have to is to merge narrative style and more traditional gaming technique together and he was loving it and he was lo- loving it just as much there as he was loving it on the interview so um so yeah I'm looking forward to playing tomorrow yeah it should be good so am I and on that narrative thing I the the nemesis nemesis the genesis not the nemesis <laughs> two very different things there the genesis I think of Tales from the Loop clearly comes from uh, Simon Stollenhag's artwork. And yeah. you can just feel yourself falling into it almost as a player, I think, wanting then to drive some of that story. So that all works very nicely. And will be really interesting to see how it plays out tomorrow. So looking forward to that. Brilliant. And of course, he finishes off the interview by, by persuading us to go and talk to Frederico. Well, it wasn't so much persuading. It was grabbing grabbing us by the throat and pushing us down the corridor to go and talk to Federico. <laughs> so, Pretty much. <laughs> so, let's, so let's have a listen to our chat with Federico Stones, uh, the mind behind Nibiru. Hi, here we are at uh, Dragon Meat, and we've got the great opportunity to talk to Federico. Now, Federico, hi. Um, hey. We obviously are uh, great fans of Coriolis, and it's uh, science fiction firefly arabian nights kind of game and we've been uh, uh pointed in the direction of nibiru and we don't really know very much about it and we would love to hear 
okay. little bit more about a game that actually we think might be right up our street as gamers. Uh, definitely. I mean, it is hard sci-fi in the vein of like the novels of Arthur C. Clarke, um, Asimov. Um, Excellent. So what we have here is basically a game set in this massive space station, sparsely populated, like in small communities, uh, with its own history, in which you guys will be playing vagabonds. So vagabonds are people that woke up inside of this space station with no memories of their past. Okay. Now... The gist of the game, the objective of the game, as it stands, is to recover the memories of your past. Right, okay. Um, and what we have is a mechanic in which, as most role-playing games, you'll be rolling dice to like overcome certain challenges. However, our characters have a pool of points, memory points, representing the potential to remember. So the potential to remember the past. So whenever you're rolling for something, say that you want to basically climb to that... I don't know, water tower or something, yeah. you can roll for it or you can spend those memory points to basically write a memory. And that memory maybe takes you back to your hometown in which you used to climb to the rooftop of your neighbor. Okay. And with that memory will also come along a mechanical edge. So basically you'll get a plus one to climbing. In this way, using these memory points, creating these memory entries, as they are called, you'll be delineating your character not only narratively, but mechanically as right, well. Right, okay. That sounds really interesting. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the game itself is very narrative-focused as well as mm -hmm. uh, yes. sort of mechanics-focused. Yeah. Fabulous. Um, in terms of... The, you, know, you talk about Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke, which are two of my favorite authors ever. Not that I haven't read any for a while, but I've read it all over the years. Um, how are you trying to bring that kind of uh, feel and you know, say hard sci-fi edge out in uh, Nibiru? So that comes mainly through the setting. Right. Um, what we're doing is, because mostly what you see in role-playing games when it comes to science fiction is more like a space opera kind of thing, that although it's nice, at least not my style, uh, in this case what we're doing is we're building this space station, we're determining how gravity works, it basically generates gravity through centripetal force, so you have this thing right. where we've calculated, like we've worked with engineers and actual physicists okay. uh, to determine what's the habitable zone, because you have basically like a darker zone where there's like a lot of pressure, which is kind of like in the fringe of the space station, whereas you get closer to the core, the gravity is reduced we have a lot of stuff in that way and how, for example, the communities live. For, for example, the communities of people that live closer to the core have a different physiology. Um, right. uh, their heart rates are probably basically slower because they, there's less pressure for them to like pump blood. So we have everything described in that way and developed in the setting. So it's very, very well kind of like studied and, and, and just laid out. Uh, yeah, I mean... I <clears throat> That sounds that sounds great. I think the the idea of making it scientifically accurate mm -hmm. is a really nice one because you often find people will players do pick at games that, like you say, are a bit more space opera yeah. and say, well, it doesn't work. Gravity doesn't work like that, or yeah. you know, exactly. or the real Coriolis effect doesn't work like that. You know, you fire your gun there and your bullet is yep. fifty feet, you know, to the left. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. How do you find that? Clearly, that's that. You know, there might be some quite heavy maths and science involved in yeah. there. How have you found sort of translating that into, uh, uh, into well, the setting? Or is that just really the kind it's of... It's mostly the a workings narrative. Behind it. It's yeah. mostly the workings behind it. Uh, it's still science fiction, so you know there's going to be a limit. You know there's a part in which you just 
might go wild with it because it's part of the creative process. Uh, we're not writing science, actually. <laughs> but it's one of those things that it's nice to see in fiction as years go by. People are more worried about the scientifics that they want their stories to make sense yeah. uh, in a scientific kind of way. So if you see, like, for example, The Expanse and all of like uh, late works of science fiction that kind of bringing back the hard sci-fi from yesteryear uh, yeah. with that feel. It's, it's really nice to see. For example, there's uh, this organization, I'm not sure if you know about it, it's the Science and Entertainment Exchange. It's, a, it's an American organization that's funded by the government that basically aids creatives in getting fiction done in like a scientifically accurate uh, way. It's kind of like a hotline in which you can yeah. uh, call and they will assist you with that. Somewhere to get the science right if you actually exactly. care so enough it's really to nice get to the science right. Wave. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. So Nibiru itself, presumably that is the, the space station, the setting. Exactly. Um, presumably that's a pretty vast setting. Maybe I shouldn't be asking, but what's outside? Uh, what's or outside? Do we, ne- do we not know? Is that one that, of the mysteries? Unfortunately, <laughs> I won't be able to reveal that today. Uh, no, that's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was going to ask, I'm just looking at your quick start guide mm-hmm. here. Yeah. I, well, there's a number of questions I've got to ask, yeah. actually. Go ahead. So let's, let's start off with the fact that I'm, I'm seeing uh, D4s yep, is D4s. your base dice here. Mm-hmm. What's, what's your mechanic? So the base mechanic is you have two types of actions. So you have normal actions and contested actions. So normal actions will be generally against the environment. You're trying to climb that ledge. You're going to open this door, whatever. You're rolling three dice. That's like a set number. Three dice. And you're trying to get a four amongst your results. So that's a success. For example, what you just rolled. Cool. If you don't get a four, you're not successful. Now, if you have a contested roll, so against someone else, there's a clash of wills, you're going to roll your die. Your opponent, generally the narrator, will roll their dice. You're going to add up and compare. Now, D4s are ideal for that because it's the lowest numbers you'll be adding with any die uh, in the market. And it's pretty straightforward like that. It's a very basic system upon which so, the memory kind of uh, is built. So it's a basic four for a success on an uncontested exactly. roll. Exactly. The mm-hmm. contested roll, is it adding up the number of fours, or are we saying here, you know, I've rolled... Uh, uh, You've <laughs> rolled a nine. Nine, there. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's right. You compare that to the storytellers, in this case it's eight, so you've won yeah. that. Cool. Okay. Now I'm seeing, I'm also looking at the character sheets here, mm-hmm. and I'm yeah. seeing that obviously as you go through, yeah. you fill out your... Your journal. Your journal, as you go through. And they, these give you that, as you said earlier on, a mechanical exactly. effect on, on the others. So that plus one would mean that normally I roll one three, more but this time I roll a four. Exactly right. Got, mm-hmm. Gotcha. And um, how long do, you, in, do, do I get all these in a scenario? Or does it take three or four sessions or so. a whole campaign to fill out this sheet? So here you're looking at a quick start guide character sheet, which is not like the one you'll see in the The final version, yeah. Um, In the final one, what you'll see is you'll have basically a main character sheet, and then after that you'll have your journals. So your journal basically has each page filled with eight memory entries, and as you go, you'll be able to reveal more and more journal pages and continue to build your character. That's the idea. Uh, We've had playtest campaigns in which there were several journal pages and lots of character background, and those characters are so developed at that point that they have a huge weight in like how the players perceive them at the table it's really interesting it's a very nice experience so how so when the final version comes out you're kickstarting it you expect to kickstart it next year i'm guessing we are kickstarting next year yeah Mm -hmm. that's great to hear um and when when i support it as a kickstarter i'm looking to get a a full rule book and a campaign, or is it all in You're going one? to get a full rule book. 
if I could tell you about stretch goals, I'm going to say yes, you will be seeing adventures along right. your stretch, uh, several adventures. As stretch um, goals. Exactly. Uh, several of these will be working as one-shot adventures that will basically uh, link up to Become one another. Into a campaign. So you can, of course, uh, play in the course of an afternoon and have like a full closure to a story, but that will be linked. Uh, so yeah, you'll see that for sure. So you may eventually find out what's outside Nibiru. Um, <laughs> yes, eventually, with a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. Jolly good. Um, just a couple of uh, sort of final questions, really. Yeah. Um, firstly, in terms of the the character creation, there's a lot of games, and Coriolis is a really good example that really encourage uh, collaborative character creation between players and. Uh, you know, a, a common backstory, mm-hmm. yes, which I think you know is, is, is great. And and looking at the uh, the, the the quick start mm-hmm. character yes. sheets has has a feeling, of, or for me evokes a feeling of fate, where you your other players are actually helping to generate the the aspects of your character. Is there anything in this that other players will be helping you generate your? memories uh, or yes. a collaborative way of, of taking that forward? So what you have, because your archetypes are, instead of dictating a class or a profession, like in most role-playing games, they're dictating the place where you come from. Right. That place will and can be shared with other people. Because if you're both coming, for example, from this habitat, the habitat of Bright Town, uh, that's an actual place that you might have shared your childhood or your adolescence with someone else. So you have a shared memory. Exactly. uh, From that same place. So you have that thing. Furthermore, there is a particular habitat, which we haven't unveiled much, but I'm going to tell you right now. That <laughs> is, it's called, it, is this a scoop? This is kind of like a scoop, yeah. <laughs> yeah get, uh, in, get in there. Scoop. Excellent. Which is called the Dreamlands. The Dreamlands. So characters from the Dreamlands remember stuff from other people. So all of their memories uh-huh. are not theirs. They're from someone else. So there's this thing where you are actually finding people as your adventure rages on, and you can basically find out that you used to remember uh, this person's life. You lived in on their shoes, uh, in their shoes. So it's one of those things where you can write memories about other people, potentially about other of your fellow players. Right. So it's one yeah. of those things where it's uh, it does that interwoven narrative. Yeah, uh, and I, and I love character. that. I think that's yeah. going to be really cool. Really look yeah, forward yeah. to that. A couple of other just very last things, really. Firstly, um, this might sound really weird, but I love the smell of the book. And a good smelling book is a really good start. I just, okay, yeah. It's probably chemicals and stuff I shouldn't be breathing in there, but um, Coriolis is a great book for that. This is lovely as well. Um, if that's not a bit weird. The, uh, no, the, not at all. The last, the last thing great is, so, harking back to Asimov, um, are there going to be any three-law robots in um, Nibiru? We have robots, and we have basically this thing where AIs make a pretty big uh, appearance in the setting. AIs in the setting are essentially one of those things where the core of the AI, the brain of the AI, is an advanced thing that the people of Nibiru inherited. So they can build a framework for the AI, but they don't understand the inner workings of the brain, the machine. So it's one of those things where AIs are kind of like a mysterious form of technology that people know how to use more or less but they don't really know how it works so there's uh, a kind of technology step back for the characters that Mm -hmm. that uh like you say takes it away from that space opera exactly and we have also one of the habitats related to the idea of ais right cool Mm -hmm. so we have this thing i'm just going to tell it you um (laughs) uh, in which there's this virus this uh, 
virus that affects AIs and affects um, robots that essentially gives them like a glimpse of consciousness right. and self-awareness. And one of the habitats basically comp comprises vagabonds that remember these sparks of consciousness from other from AIs. So it's an interesting thing because okay. it feels like these glimpses of humanity that has sparked through this virus are then concentrated and, and kind of like um, converge into the memories of these people. So there's a lot of very interesting <laughs> philosophical yeah. uh, concepts playing around. Oh, that, sounds, uh, yeah. that sounds excellent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I really look forward to seeing the Kickstarter come out. Sure. Um, unless you have any other questions, Matthew? Well, I guess one other question. Are we looking at a month or a quarter next year for the Kickstarter launch? Oh, I'm just going to say next year. Because this thing launches when it's done. Yeah, uh, that's fair I enough. think a wise uh, decision that we've gone through with, and yeah, yeah that's how brilliant. it's going to be. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really no look fun. forward to seeing the Kickstarter comes out when it comes out sometime next year. No further information. Um, and all the best. Good luck. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks to you. Thank you. Bye. Now you might ask, why? we're even considering another science fiction game when this is all about Coriolis, this podcast. But actually, I think there are some interesting similarities with Coriolis, and I even think the setting might have an impact on Coriolis. Um, let me explain. First of all, the first similarity I wanted to point out was that, like Coriolis, it uses a basic dice pool system where, where the highest number on the dice gets you a success. Yeah. The difference, of course, is it uses D4 as opposed to D6. Possibly my least favourite dice of all of them. but Well, I have to say, you know, he had some lovely metal D4 uh, to demonstrate. And by God, they're hard to pick off the table. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not a big fan of D4. Uh, neither am I a big fan of D4 when somebody drops them off the table and nobody notices until I step on them. <laughs> uh, Bitter so experience. that's already Bitter experience. two reasons why I won't be kickstarting this game. But on the other hand, reasons why, you know, it might be worth thinking about is Nibiru. You know, where, where do you think that name comes from, Dave? Well, that's the name of uh, the, uh, what is it, the mythical planet that all the... Like, exactly, that's going to come and destroy us all. Yeah, yeah. The one that so does, I don't know. The uh, one that doesn't exist, I mean... Yeah, yeah. Part, part, part of the, um, the idea of Nibiru is... It, it, a little bit like uh, Mutant Year Zero, is there is a mystery, or even like Coriolis, that there's a mystery that even the core book doesn't reveal mm -hmm. uh, about the nature of Nibiru. And I have some theories about that. I think the mystery in this is even more so almost than either, or certainly more so than Coriolis, and certainly I think more so than Mutant Year Zero as well. Like you said, they do explain what the mystery is in the core book, because that forms part of the core campaign if you want to run it but um, yeah i guess i guess what i meant was just not for players as it were no but i know but i think there's also yeah. that about the game as well like if, if having having that kind of mystery as it were yeah so and i got a sneaking suspicion that the mystery of the nibiru campaign is you might all be on some sort of generation ship the earth having been about to be destroyed by the planet nibiru uh, okay and you're all traveling on you know for years and years and years you're going to be traveling and uh, everybody uh, i should say that one of the conceits of the game is you'll wake up with very few memories yeah and uh one of the mechanics of the game is when you want to do something 
you describe a memory which enables you to do that thing and then that becomes part of your character's history and you get a skill or whatever that memory uh, defines and so you you know you build your character as you go along that that's one of the core mechanical conceits just, just a point on on your just a point on your generational arc ship kind of thing i think that well, a couple of things one we obviously tried to probe federico a little bit about it and he was obviously very tight-lipped uh that it might the secret might come out in future uh, future publications but not in the original nibiru publication but also as uh, such a big fan of uh, anyway as i am of uh, authors like arthur c Clarke and isaac asimov i do note and i think this possibly supports your your theory matt mm-hmm. one of the books that he notes down as being a, a key inspiration is rendezvous with rama by arthur ah, c Clarke. there you go and now for those yeah. for those idiots out there who haven't read it so get out and read it um, don't read the sequels, but read the first one. Rendezvous with Rama is about a artifact, alien artifact that comes into our solar system, and it's got things in it. And the the first book is all about the mystery. And so, actually, maybe having cited that as an inspiration, that adds weight to your theory, possibly, Matthew. Mm. Mm. Well, we shall have to wait and see. Yeah. What did you think, though? Um, so, I've I've just talked a lot about Nibiru. What did you think of your chat with uh, Frederica? Oh, it's really interesting. I, I love the idea of, of of your memories forming your your character, and that all plays into stuff that we really like about certainly Coriolis. It's about building your character through play, rather than mm-hmm. decide, you know finding out by doing, rather than finding out by deciding at the start what it is. Yeah, and this this game takes that principle and really works with it. I mean, there's a couple of pictures in the quick start guide which. Um, might stick up on our Facebook page, actually, which demonstrate that really well. There's a really good picture of somebody battering a bad guy with a baseball bat. And you've got the kind of faded image memory that he's using to do that behind him of an earlier life where he's in a baseball outfit and he's hitting a hitting a baseball. And a I just home run, I'm sure. I, I'm sure. And I just love it. It's really nice. There's a couple of other pictures that do something similar. And I, so I like I like that idea very much. I'm not so sure about the mechanic, as we've talked about. Um, I like the idea that it's hard sci-fi. If it's taking its inspiration from Asimov and Clark and, and their ilk, then that can only be a good thing for me, because they are, you know, I grew up on the, the their writing um, and absolutely love it. So that, that can't be a bad thing. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know whether I'm going to kickstart it or not yet when it finally comes up. I'll make the decision at the time. Knowing what I'm like, I probably will, because I'm quite... Uh, susceptible to a good Kickstarter, and I think this game has got quite a lot going for it. <laughs> One thing about the interview I do would like to say was um, about ten minutes in. If anybody ever doubted that we we hadn't gone to, to Dragon Meat, you hear the announcement where we have to stop. <laughs> so <laughs> we were definitely doing it at Dragon Meat. You know, we weren't. We're not lying about any of this. Hey, we're, we're on we're on Dragon Meat's own official video uh, of of the day. Yeah, the Medivhi video. Two minutes twenty two. Get in there. You'll. Uh, You'll see us interviewing Yeah, you'll see Lloyd. the two of us talking to Lloyd, actually. Yeah. So, proof that we, we, we were speaking to him on um, on Callum's fancy microphone um, and recorder setup. Indeed. And it was a great day. Really enjoyed it. But really good. we're half an hour into our podcast now, Matthew. I think it's high time that we talked a little bit about the syndicate. And I want to hear your answer to my question. The syndicate 
Are they all bad? Yes. The answer is <laughs> yes, Dave. They are all bad. But they're bad in two ways. Okay. Okay, can, can first I just, of all... Before we get there, can I just say, your answer to that reminded me of... Uh, this, is, this is total digression. Sorry, people who are desperate to listen to Coriolis stuff. I had a Not the Nine O'Clock News book back in the day. You know, you remember... Not- <laughs> I know where this is going. And, and on the front of it, it was like, a, you know, it's in the news articles. And it said on the front of it, a big headline, is the Iranian Shah really dead? Page 14. And you go to page 14 and he says, yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, apologies. Yes. So two things you were going to talk about. Sorry, let's get back on track. Yeah, two things. Right. So, yes, the syndicate are all bad. Um, you know, they run protection rackets, gambling, pimping, drugs and smuggling. Those are bad things. I mean, you know, arguably you might say that drugs should be legalized, but, you know, they are making their money by doing bad things. And of course, although it doesn't feature quite so heavily in the version of the Third Horizon that's presented to us in Freer Legan's work, the original Coriolis also had them trading experiences. I can't think what they were called, but um, proxy kind of like snuff videos. Proxy tech. That's what it's called. Yes. Isn't it? Yeah. As well. So, you know, they, they, they were making people do horrible things and recording their sensations while they were doing it so that they could sell that to to people that were, I guess, turned on by that sort of stuff. So, yeah, you know, these guys are criminals. So they're bad in that sort of way. But also, actually, I think out of all the factions that are presented in the book, they're a badly written faction. Okay. And the reason I I think that is because they're criminals, okay. And criminals notoriously talk about having honour among thieves and all sorts of that, that that sort of stuff. But if you look at our own analogues in in the real world, uh, the mafia, the vori in in, what's called the Russian mafia, they're always, you know, at each other's backs. They're never organised enough to be presented in the way that they appear to present themselves in this book they they're not really they shouldn't i feel even be a faction yeah now if you read into the detail they're kind of only nominally a faction uh um i remember in fact actually i think this is this i'm part of the reason for the chip on my shoulder on this is because in preparing for the scenario that we're going to be talking about a bit later on the last one that we ran I confused the syndicate and the the consortium in one fatal error in that I indicated to you guys as players that the syndicate had a seat on the council. Well, they don't because the consortium, consortium do. have their seat yeah. on the council, but they are that intertwined. Anyway, I I don't know whether you noticed, but I, 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 I changed what I said halfway through and um, uh, talked about somebody from the consortium coming down as I realised the fatal error I'd made. But there is this idea, you know, even having a, a, a faction page for them in the book and talking about them as a faction, uh, talking about them as part of the the uh, the Zenithian side of the Zenithian first come discussion gives them too much homogeneity for a gang of people Good who word. you know are all trying to invade each other's turf get the numbers business over one another. And I'd be happy if the syndicate were presented as somebody who on, you know, a a group of criminals who actually 
pretty much had Coriolis stations sewn up. But I can't believe, particularly in the universe that the Third Horizon represents to us, where, well, as your players have been discovering in your campaign, communicating between systems is a big, big deal. It's not about phoning somebody up and saying, have that man killed. It's about sending somebody, basically through a gate. You know, it takes a couple of weeks to get that message there. Yeah. And and to have a trans-horizon criminal organisation feels to me more impossible than any of the other factions that are represented here. Interesting. Hmm. You weren't expecting that, were you? You had some rebuttals for an argument um, I was going to make. No, 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 not at all. Actually, I... I think I, I think my I, my position is very very similar to yours. The first thing when I was thinking about this, the first thing I wrote I wrote down was, hmm, the syndicate, not really a faction. <laughs> like, we are in agreement. So I think we're going to be in uh, in fierce and violent agreement on much of this. And I think you're Damn, right. This, this this will be one of the shortest debates we've ever had. <laughs> it's not really a debate, is it? We're just <laughs> patting each other on the back and telling each other how fucking great we are. Um, yeah. Which is what we do anyway, I guess, much of the time. But it is nice to come to those conclusions separately and not to, not to have scripted this. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so I think, you know, the, the analogue of, say, Sicilian Mafia or Cosa Nostra, as portrayed in the Godfather movies, is probably a really good one. Because, yeah. as you say, you've got all these families, they will fight each other uh, if, if necessary. They're always jostling for power and influence against one another. But they do come together. They do have a council of sorts that is called and all the dons come together to fix fix problems usually between themselves actually rather than yeah elsewhere than an an outside problem exactly yeah so so i completely agree with you i think on all of that and i don't think it is one big organization so there could be something in terms of a gm or a player you could easily have a campaign as a syndicate family running it totally against other syndicate families as they yeah. are, they're your main protagonists and rivals. So that, that might work quite well. On the question that I asked, are they all bad? I There's one thing I, I noticed, that the syndicate does not deal in slavery. And it does not deal mm. in faction tech, although I think that's probably less relevant. So it says that there are rumours that they are working with the Algolan slaves. But actually, as as a as a thing, they are... They're not into slavery. So actually, is that because they do have a a nice side to them somewhere? Or is that just because... No. Or is, no, it, because, or is it because it's um, too, just too much hassle to, to run with slaves, maybe? Not enough, yeah, not enough profit. Yeah, see, I think this to me comes down to they do... And this actually... Um, I'm happier about the fact that they're not into slavery not because there's some sort of moral centre to them where they won't cross that line, but rather because... They work in the most in the businesses that are most opportune for them to work in. So, if we take the syndicate as being based on the criminal gangs of Coriolis Station, there isn't any slavery, any of the sort of slave trade. You know, that's all happening around Algol and stuff like that. Much and further away. And there may well be criminal gangs involved in that. But in fact, I'd say actually there is slavery of a sort here. I'm you know not a big fan of the idea that pimping is some sort of crime that doesn't involve the exploitation of powerless individuals who are yeah. held 
maybe not in slavery, mate, but are often held in debt bondage or but drug as, bondage. As good as it's as yeah. good as slavery. So you know they don't have a moral objection to slavery if they're involved in being pimps. Okay, interesting. So that's fine. I I I think I can I can go with that. I think in in, in my considerations, I'd been working along the lines that they, you know, if they weren't involved in slavery per se, it was because it was too much hassle or drew too much attention or wasn't enough profit margin in it rather than them yeah. saying, Oh no, slavery. Oh, we can't, <laughs> yeah, we can't do that to those, those nice people. Yeah. I think you're right. It is too much hassle because it's too far away. Yeah. I think that's the basic thing. And also, you know, there one gets the impression, you know, we ought to, we ought to look more in the economy of the third horizon, you know, what, what's being produced, where, where's it all coming to, but people seem to be willing to come to Coriolis. So it isn't like you're having to transport hundreds of people on ships to Coriolis to make them clean the gutters of the basement or whatever. No. There are there are plenty of people who are ready to be taken advantage of on their way to Coriolis already. Yeah. It could be that some of those people get shipped off somewhere else. But given that the systems around Coriolis within, you know, reasonable travelling time don't seem to be crying out for labour, arguably. I need to think about that some more. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I, yeah, I don't think that there is a business there that they're interested in. No, fair, and fair enough. I think it's also worth pointing out that if we, you know, if we go to, what is it, page 198 of the core book, where we've got our page on the syndicate, it talks at the end of that bit about the challenges. And it says the syndicate is the largest criminal organisation in the horizon, but not necessarily the only one. There are three rising threats to their power in the horizon, the serpent, the slavers and the Farrakhan. Now, I'd take issue with there only being three. I mean, obviously... Uh, any GM could create a, you know, a triad or something of their own description, and they immediately have missed the Okradama, who are the syndicate, but for Mirror, which I always, I mean, I've used, I've used the Okradama criminal gangs in my campaign, in the, in the Corsair campaign, but even then, it, it felt a bit, you know, like you said about the syndicate, how can the Okradama be one thing across even one system? let alone the syndicate be one thing across 36 systems many systems yeah. now, you know and i think there could be a thing where you know just as we uh, something that really annoys me is where the way our, our the way we report organized crime in the real world is we call we talk about the mafia and the russian mafia yeah like the russian mafia are like a branch of the mafia well they're not but it is an easy shorthand to say that uh, these are two organizations working in a vaguely similar way Obviously, they are, I'm sure, massively interlinked in all sorts of little and tiny ways, but it isn't like there is a big mafia boss or even a mafia council that gets together until, basically, somebody has robbed or killed somebody else of power and peace needs to be made. Otherwise, of course, um, there'd be, you know, murders happening all over the place and too many dead bodies to tidy away. Yeah. So... You know, I I guess a little bit like in the real world, maybe the syndicate could be used like the mafia as a shorthand for gangs. But I think locally they'd all be known, at least by reputation, as the individual local criminal gang, whatever they were, or criminal family. Yeah, it's just given, brought me an interesting thought that I wonder if actually, as you say, the syndicate, which is 
so focused on Coriolis and uh, the, the Kua system, perhaps. I wonder if the you, you get crime gangs or or, or criminals who are uh, you know on the on the up and up who say they're part of the syndicate because a bit like Father Christmas or the Tooth Fairy, there's this big thing ten systems away called the syndicate, and nobody knows yeah. anything about it. But if you're suddenly you know the arm of the syndicate in Dabaran, say for your argument's sake, you know you think that shrouds you then with a lot more power, a lot more kudos, a lot more clout. Because people then think, oh, he's part of the syndicate. And the syndicate's this enormous thing that nobody actually knows anything about and might be nowhere near as powerful as uh, as anybody thinks. Yeah. You see, I'm happier with something like that happening than the bit that says here, and again, this comes from page 198, the syndicate's contact with legitimate economy is handled by front men in the consortium, bureaucrats on Sadal, drug cartels on Angle, and supposedly even the rebels on Zalos B. Now, you know, to be honest, no. I'm not <laughs> having that. Not in my world. Um, uh, well, you know, if if they're involved in the drug cartels on Angle, why aren't they involved in the slave trade on Angle? You know, it makes no sense. Yeah. Drug cartels and slave trade and Algol all go together. So maybe, maybe there are people on Algol who say they represent the syndicate. Maybe one or two of them actually do, but I, you know, the real trade, the real crime on those things, I think, is being done by local bodies. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So, Matthew, I think you've answered the question. Uh, are the syndicate all bad? Core blind? Yes, yes, sir, they are. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but cool. also, I think that you know that's an area that I feel that the whole criminal world is is too simplified by being part of the syndicate. Yeah. I feel, you know, there could be a whole, you know, uh, a guide, you know, there's lots of stuff about being smugglers or, or traders or whatever in terms of your group concept. But, you know, you suggested something really interesting about could you do a group concept that was a crime family? Mm. Yes, you could. And I'd love to, you know, do a sort of Sopranos. But yeah. the Sopranos weren't the Mafia. The Sopranos were some guys trying to make a living, doing some legitimate stuff and some illegitimate stuff, and you know, and and having adventures and and getting into all sorts of situations with with actually the mafia getting hardly a mention in a way. Yeah, yeah. I think so there's... I think that's a missed opportunity from Fear Gan, and maybe it's a a plug that needs to be um a, gap that... a hole that needs to be <laughs> a plug that needs to be gapped excellent yes <laughs> <laughs> cool right where are we now you were going to talk to me about the spe- spectral corsair yeah so um spectral corsair we've had a number of scenarios since last time and the crew has slowly progressed from uh, zalos to mira to zib and finally now they're in tarazug and are just one jump away from odicon which is where the actual scenario was sending them in the uh, the first scenario was sending them in the first place. But there's been a few events on the way, and I just thought I'd pull out a couple just because they were they were interesting. The first was the first death of one of our characters, Captain Leo Valdez, was shot dead in a in a, in a gunfight with some bounty hunters, and died in the first shot that was fired in that gunfight. Um, <sighs> I, I know. You see, so, that's what I love about Coriolis fighting. It isn't about getting down to your last hit point and then dying. Sometimes 
shit happens. He got shot in the chest with a 65 crit, bullet through his heart, dead before he hit the floor. Excellent. It's the it's the way to go. Yeah. Well, it led it led to a brilliant fight. So the other other guys uh, again, Roll played it really well. Paul, who plays Eight Bit, was Valdez's oldest friend, and Valdez had gone out of his way to help Eight Bit and keep him safe. He went berserk. He fired all his all his bullets off in one automatic burst. They managed to kill one of the bounty hunters. They broke another one, and then they just rushed the last one, you know, not caring about being shot or or anything else. Captured two of them alive, but they weren't alive for long. They were just summarily executed on board uh, on their cargo deck. But it was it was really uh, interesting, really good bit of play. And it came about because, and this is going to play into my talent of the episode a bit later on. So I'd introduced uh, a planet called Mizuna in the Zib system, which is a frozen planet. And the, the, the inhabitants of that planet are humanites, Mizunians. And they have a, uh, a humanite talent that allows them to thrive, in fact, really flourish in sub-zero temperatures. And this planet is under interdiction by the Church of the Icons. And they picked up some Mizunians who'd got away from the planet, but who wanted to return. They were then approached by some bounty hunters who said they had an Ijma Earth license to um, arrest these guys for the interdiction, for, for having broken the interdiction. And they then agreed, the characters then agreed, okay, to, to help with uh, a nice easy arrest, they will leave them in stasis after they jump through the portals and then invite the bounty hunters on board to arrest them one at a time. Osgar, Dean's character, who's also a humanite, didn't like that at all. And he arranged it that the Mizunians came out of stasis early, or earlier than the, the, the crew. So the crew were suddenly at the wrong end of the Mizunians' barrels because Osgar told them that they were going to be double-crossed. So they did another double-cross. <laughs> so they then double-crossed the bounty hunters. And it was in the, in the encounter with the bounty hunters after the double-double-cross that Valdez was killed. But Connor took it really well. It was an excellent moment. And it, it just kind of proved in the way that the game works, that anybody can die. And it means that there's always that tension in any level of combat. That It's a bit like uh, the Serenity movie. So when, at the end, when, yeah. Wa- when Wash was killed, sorry, spoilers, anybody hasn't seen it. When Wash was killed, it basically opened the, the ball on anyone being killed. Yeah, I, I just got to, I've got to pour out my heart on that, on that moment. Yeah. Yeah, Wash was killed. But then I think what what made it even more powerful was Zoe was then laid out, not quite dead, but a nasty gash up the spine. Yeah. And it all started to feel like it was falling apart. And there was a moment that you thought, oh, my God, they're just going to kill everybody. Oh, they're going to have a really down ending. Yeah. Yeah. And I was ready for that. I I was shocked and horrified by it, but I was ready for it as well. (laughs) And uh, yeah, no. Joss Whedon knows how to manipulate our emotions. But you're right. So, you know, I think that's one of the things about sometimes, well, you know, there's a really interesting thing about the time that your character almost died in my campaign. And I lost my teddies out of my pram almost. (laughs) Yeah. Now, I think one of the reasons why um, you may not have been ready to accept that death was actually, I don't think the moment was right in in that one. So, no. um, you know, I think we were willing to fudge that one, you know, for various reasons that we've talked about in episodes previous. But there are some times when 
you're wrong to fudge a death. Yes. Because of what happened afterwards. And yeah. you, you might have taken sympathy on Captain Valdez there and said, oh, t- I'll tell you what, I'll re-roll for whatever reason. You know, I, I, you might have said, I'd, you, know, you might roll that behind the screen or whatever and said, well, let's re-roll again. And immediately, actually, you lose all of that moment that happened afterwards, that emotional yes. yeah. moment and action. So, well done you. <laughs> Although, not well done me as a player in kind of not accepting Yafet's death. Because I think there's a key... I can live a, with that as well. You know, I might have been tougher on you if there had been a moment, you know, you'd, you'd built the characters up as far as you guys have built in, in, in the Spectral Corsair campaign. Actually, it might have been the right time. And I might have been tougher on you and said, well, I'm sorry I rolled it behind the screen. But, you know, the dice right. is the dice. Get used yeah. to it. I know it's your birthday. <laughs> yeah, but I but I think though that I, I think I mentioned before, but I'll just briefly mention it again because I think it stands saying again what that might have done or what that perhaps should have done was turn the focus of that story from it being Yafet's story to it being Salah's story. Yeah, um, and Salah having gone through all that time to find his brother only under the most innocuous and pointless of circumstances for him to be shot through the head and lying dead on his feet. That makes a really yeah. good story. That would have done. Yeah, you're right. But you're right. We I should think let you're right. the dice to take the story as much well, as possible. Really. Next time. I'm not having him killed next now. Next time. <laughs> next time I kill you. Yeah. Um, but there were a couple of other things I'll just briefly mention that's gone on in my Inspector Corsair. So one was, uh, I did a, uh, a one-shot for Morgan, because he's been away at university. And so I did a, uh, what ended up being a, a sidebar. Two- yeah, it ended up being a two-hander because Dean played as well and he rolled up another character for, for the one-off. Uh, and it ended up being an assassination scenario. And Morgan had all these really good ideas about getting a poison, getting it into an aerosol dispenser, uh, sneaking in and leaving it in the bedroom of the person he was trying to kill. And the scenario was really good. That plan nearly worked, but it didn't. Ended up in a bit of a fight. Morgan did manage to kill the person he was trying to kill and escaped by the skin of his teeth. Very, very close to being killed. But what it did, though, for me as a GM, was it focused my mind on the poison rules. And it was mm. only it was only yesterday in preparing for this podcast that I looked at them sufficiently closely so I now understand how the poison rules work. No, I must admit, we haven't had any need to look at them before. No, so I'd, I'd missed the point that the poison's strength, which can be up to eight, is the number of dice that you have to roll against an opposed... Uh, opposed role in order to see whether the poison how badly the, f- the poison affects you and if you right. fail if you fail that role and and what's that what's a player character rolling to oppose the effects of the poison it depends on the poison so they don't go into any greater detail at all but they just say the stat that you have to roll depends upon the poison that's being used so i guess it could be a psychedelic in which case it would need to be wits or empathy yeah. or something if it's you know purely if it's a physical, killing one it's strength or whatever yeah yeah yeah. So what should happen is if you fail that roll, then you suffer the the damage or the stress, depending on the poison, equal to the poison's strength. So maximum will be eight. But what it doesn't do is tell you anything about death. So in the game that I ran with Morgan, I house ruled that if you were broken by damage from the poison, that poison actually killed you. That was a killing a killing break. Yeah. There's nothing in the rule book about it at all. I wonder whether you could either do that, have that, if you get broken by poison damage, it kills you, or give the poison some capability of critting. So maybe if you get broken by poison, you suffer an immediate crit. 
perhaps. So I don't know which way to go. I'm fascinated by that, that there doesn't appear to be a death thing in that. Is that because all the play they've had in playtests has been about psychedelics as opposed to uh, assassination poisons? I'm just looking at the um, the combat section to see, you know, atypical damage. You, I thought, oh, well, maybe maybe the bit about dying from poisons is in the atypical damage bit. But I'm just flicking through that now. I don't think it and is. It's got fire and falling and drowning and explosions and hunger and thirst and cold and vacuum and radiation, which is, I guess, as close to poison as it gets. But that is it. Yeah, where I took. So yeah. So I got I got the extra information on poison on page one hundred and thirteen one one three under the equipment, and it's got poison there. And then it says, the poison attack is an opposed poison strength versus attribute roll. If the victim fails, she suffers damage or stress equal to the poison strength. If she wins, she suffers a minor symptom, and that's it. So it doesn't say anything else about death or. Or anything, you know, if you've taken some cyanide or you've been bitten by something horrendously deadly, that might kill you in minutes, potentially. Yeah. So there's nothing that seems to reflect that. So my my feeling is it's about crits, I think. Um, so, you know, yeah. if you're... Uh, if you if you're, you're eight poison dice or whatever that you've rolled aren't negated by the, any successes that the punter gets, if, if you've got one, then you are merely broken by it and laid out for a bit of time. If you've got two, or maybe you might say a poison has got, um, you know, crit on two or crit on three, if you want to be that um, precise about it. But let's say you've got three successes left, then that's effectively a crit. And then maybe there's a, a whole other critical damage from poison table that talks about, you know, Depending on the poison, you know, are you permanently blind? Are you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, are but, you dead? But I don't are think you poisons work in that way. So I don't think, and this might also apply to explosives because otherwise the explosives feel a bit rubbish. So your eight dice for your poison, which is by the book the strongest poison you can get, you're going to get one success, maybe two. So I think what the rules are saying is if you get more successes from the poison dice than the person who's resisting it so the poison's effectively won that opposed roll it, it doesn't matter how many successes you got the damage you apply is the full strength of the poison mm. so the damage you apply under that circumstance will be eight points of damage regardless yeah. of how many successes the poison roll ended up with as long as it beat the person who's resisting it as long it. as you got at least one point through yeah yeah, yeah exactly and I wonder if that's how it should apply, how, how it should work for explosives. Because again, some of the explosives have got six damage dice. Well, that's going to be one success. That's not... You know, if, you, if you're stood on top of a grenade when it goes off, you're likely to take more damage than that. So I do wonder whether there's a, a rule hidden somewhere in the book uh, that's waiting for me or you to find to explain how explosives work. Because I haven't really used yeah, explosives. Yeah, now hold on. Have we not had this discussion on, on G Plus about explosives? We did, but I don't think we ever came to a really firm conclusion. Right. Not that I can remember, anyway. Maybe I'll have to go and have another look. Have a look at that. But, um, yeah. Anyway, the last thing I'll mention about Spectral Corsair is my group is getting quite powerful now. And I don't know whether it's... Powerful in what way? Just quite combat powerful. So they can, okay. dish, they can dish out a lot of damage. So um, Carter was 
um, a soldier anyway, so he was quite a tough combat character. Ajit Mare, Morgan's character, is a crack sniper. Osgar has uh, Zelosian animated armor, which I've nerfed a little bit, but is still pretty powerful. And Connor rolled up a Legion Nakatra character. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's one of one of the NPCs was a Legion Nakatra. I've I've quite. Uh, I I've um I shall edit some of this bit out in a moment. Don't worry. Um, I've nerfed. No, the, I want your Legion... embarrassment to come through. Here. <laughs> You've given these guys super powerful stuff, and you're now regretting it. Well, I'm I'm not really regretting it yet, but I mean, uh, Connor's character isn't a full blown Legion Nakatra. He's one that's been damaged and has been hurt, so he yeah. he isn't as powerful. He's a bit nerfed. He's a bit nerfed, but he's still pretty damn powerful. The problem I've got as a GM is I need to make the enemies at least more resilient, if not more powerful, because these guys could put people down pretty quickly, but the players can still go down just as quickly as well. Mm-hmm. Now, something I haven't done a lot of in the games that I've run so far is just put all the NPC damage that I do to a player onto breaking them, which is entirely within you know, the bounds of, of, of my rights as a GM to do that. I've always thrown in the odd crit because that gets that mm-hmm. level of tension up. So I now need to just try and slowly move the emphasis, I think, away from critting at every opportunity I got to doing a bit more breaking i think without making it obvious to the players that that's what i'm doing but i mean we've played 15 scenarios now 14 or 15 scenarios you want to reward them this is this is nine or ten months of actual real life game playing time so you want to reward you want them to feel like they're advancing and, and improving but i don't want to put it in the position where a fight becomes you know it's a one shot whoever gets the first shot that hits wins because the other side's dead. So I'm not really commenting on this as, as something that needs an answer. I just a, just an interesting sort of dynamic that I'm noticing. Yeah, well, it is interesting. I think what what's particularly interesting is the onus is, you know, you've said, well, generally I, I go to crit rather than any of the other bonus effects from weapons like simply bonus damage. And, you know, as GM, that's been my thing as well. Now, though, if you say, right, I'm going to go move a bit away from that and maybe do extra damage to break rather than crit, there's then a moral decision about mm, what do I do at this moment Yeah. when my antagonist has rolled a whole bunch of successes? Do I take him down or do I risk taking him out? And it's interesting. And also, I think I'd need to be planning for what happens when they get broken because if they're broken yeah. then you know and they lose the fight uh that changes the direction of the campaign well it does entirely as you're about <laughs> to find out as we will hear about in a little while um but yeah so so at the moment uh the current situation they're in is they've crash landed on a cursed planet and uh the next scenario will be about them fighting off the horrors of the planet whilst they try and repair the ship in order to get the hell out. And then they can jump to Odicon, and the events for which they left Coriolis in the first place can start to play out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I look forward to, to that. Now, you mentioned, though, uh, this ice planet that you've yes. created. I, I um, did, yeah. How, how, how did your players cope with that? How did, you know, did, did you give them all harsh environment roles and things like that, too? 
No, um, they they didn't have to actually go down onto the planet itself. The planet was really the uh, the well, the destination, the the reason for going where they were going, uh, and the reason for carrying the Mizunans, who are the humanites with a talent, which is this episode's talent of the episode. In episode eight of the Spectral Corsair campaign, The Iceman Cometh, I introduced the planet Mizuna, a freezing place under a light interdiction from the Church of the Icons. This interdiction was partly down to disagreements over theology and trade obligations, and the fact that Mizunians are renowned warriors with notoriously short tempers. The Church of the Icons didn't want them roaming the horizon, causing trouble. I love the idea that these guys were genetically adapted in order to inhabit Mizuna, a planet that was otherwise very hard and very expensive to colonise, and the fact that these guys have now evolved in ways their original geneticists hadn't expected. They became more than what their creators had anticipated. Their enhanced metabolisms, hyperdense capillary systems, resilient skin and subdermal flesh, and antifreeze compounds in their blood mean they flourish in sub-zero temperatures. But on the other hand, warm temperatures are a real problem, and even a danger to them. Temperatures just above zero degrees Celsius quickly become uncomfortable, and much more than that leads to incapacitation and eventual death. Hence, Mizunians are well known and easily recognised around the horizon by the old, battered, slightly blue in hue environment suits that they wear. To maintain the cold, they need to thrive. The Mizunians in the scenario had broken the interdiction, but were customers seeking passage back to Mizuna. But they were wanted by bounty hunters for having broken the interdiction in the first place. Valdez and the crew of the Corsair were persuaded to double-cross the Mizunians, and then to double-double-cross the bounty hunters. It didn't end well for Captain Valdez. But here is the talent of the episode. Humanite talent. Blood of ice. You flourish in a freezing environment. Temperatures as low as minus 30 degrees Celsius have no ill effect, and indeed these cold temperatures supercharge your metabolism with the following effects. Plus two to initiative. All physical skill rolls have a bonus of plus one die. Melee attacks with bare hands burn their target, with plus one additional damage. But if a humanite with this talent is exposed to temperatures above plus five degrees Celsius, they are severely affected. Every other turn, you must make a force roll or be stunned for one turn. At plus 10 degrees Celsius, you must roll the force check every turn. And at plus 15 degrees Celsius, each failed check also causes one point of damage. If the humanite is broken by this, he receives an immediate critical effect. This continues every turn until the humanite is placed into a cooler environment or dies. Cost, five experience points. That's great. You know, I like the detail we've got in there. I like that, you know, idea that when it's really cold, then they're supercharged. And uh, when it's about zero, they're fine. But when it's um, when it gets warm, you know, they start finding it difficult to operate. But I've got a simple question for you here. Isn't yeah. this really what the resilient talent does? And if it is, is this? Well, I'll tell you what I thought listening to it. I thought that this is a great talent for antagonists to have 
you know, effectively, if our players go to the, your planet Mizuma and meet the ice monsters, as it were, <laughs> the then, ice men, you know, that that talent would work really well there. But can you see a player character choosing this? Um, I'd, well, it's a good it's a good question. I I think I get a, a what I think is a whizzy idea, and then I just chuck the talent together without really thinking about too much whether I would expect a player to want to take it or not. And I think that's certainly come up on some of the void talents that I put together, which again, I put them together thinking, oh, that's a cool idea, without actually thinking, would would I as a player want to take it? So to answer your question, uh, I don't know. Possibly, possibly. I mean, interestingly enough, Connor, after Valdez was killed, I'd suggested to, that he might want to either play you know, the NPC character Norsa, who was this Legion Nakatra NPC they had some dealings with, or one of the Mizunians that they'd dealt with. And he immediately discounted the idea of playing someone from Mizuna, but I don't know whether that was for the talent, because I don't think he'd seen that at that point. And I think he was really keen to play a Nakatra. So it feels to me like there wasn't a, oh no, I don't want to play that talent kind of element to him deciding not to want to play play a Mizunian. I think it. I guess it's an interesting one because what it would give you as a as a character, as a player character, is you know, some excellent capabilities, some that you would be able to use if you were in your environment suit because that maintains your temperature down at minus twenty five or minus thirty. But the minute you lost your suit, you'd be in an awful lot of trouble. So it would give mm. you. It's a bit like I guess you know. Is it Superman and Kryptonite? Or you know, somebody, yeah. you know, somebody's got a weakness or a vulnerability. If you can exploit it, then you, it makes the life for that individual much harder. But do the bonuses you get? Physical skill rolls have a bonus of plus one dice. Do they get modified by negative dice if you're in an environment suit? Yeah, I guess they probably would. I mean, environment suit gives you minus two on dexterity related. Mm. I mean, it says dexterity, which is a skill. Obviously, I always I just apply it to anything that. It seems, you know, if you were in an environment Logical. suit, yeah. it would be a problem to do that easily. So that's true. But it, that that might then take that negative down to minus one overall. And if you were in a really cold environment and you could get out of your environment suit, you'd be in a much better position. Yeah. So I don't know. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, we we talked about my berserker talent, sorry, and the Marden talent yep. being something that maybe you wouldn't even offer to players, that it would just be something yeah. that... Um, that uh, the antagonists had but then you get into an idea of well you know that then becomes more like designing a creature and his powers being or its powers being powered by darkness points yes that's a reason all stuff point. to think about yeah interesting cool right Mukafar. Mukafar. yeah i've got an apology to make to our listeners here i was hoping to share a recording of uh, the Mukafar scenario we recorded when we were having our gaming weekend in on Norfolk or Suffolk, actually? Norfolk. Norfolk. There yeah. we go. Just the other side of the border. Um, but I think stretching our little blue snowball across the <laughs> length of the enormous table we had, which is lovely to play on. I really enjoyed it. I've We're going to go back next year. Um, I've been charged now, so I need to get some money off, off we, you. But that's have you booked point. it? Yeah. Okay, good, good. Hadn't heard anything. Excellent. Um, 
Uh, and I wasn't going to tell anybody until I got my credit card. We can cut this bit out as well. That's all right. <laughs> I wasn't going to tell anybody until my credit card bill came with it on, but my credit card bill's come a bit early because I got cloned or something. And uh. my bank noticed a number of illegitimate um, ah. charges to my card. So they've killed that card, and obviously they've sent me a closing statement for it. Um, so all that which, proxy tech that you were buying on your credit card, you didn't get that then? <laughs> anyway Cor- um, Coriolis, Coriolis porn as it is I think. yeah so anyway got off on one there. Um, I'll leave you to work out how you're gonna stop that and pick this up I might but... just I might just leave it all in it's fine yeah <laughs> um so yeah that recording I tried to make it into something listenable to and slowly turned myself mad a couple of weeks ago which is um why, when you come tomorrow to um, to play Tales from the Loop, I have a new microphone set up with individual mics for us all. Let's hope that a works. Desk. So hopefully that will be better. Anyway, yeah. that's by the by. You're not going to hear that. So I thought it was worth explaining a little bit what's happened because actually, as you said, when everybody's broken, that can, that's going to change the nature of the campaign. Indeed. Um, we started on Coriolis after the last adventure we'd had, uh, where you had rescued a woman whose name I've just temporarily forgotten, uh, who <laughs> was from the uh, Weeping Matriarchy, from Paradise, uh, the planet Paradise. <laughs> sounds funny, uh, doesn't it? We, Station. We, it sounds funny to say, "Ah, oh, yeah, we rescued her from Paradise." Yeah, well, thanks, guys. <laughs> yes, I <laughs> know. Uh, she she wanted to be brought back to her lover on Coriolis Station, or, and uh, came with you. Remarkably, that proved to be remarkably less difficult than you'd imagined. But then that left me with um, a number of ways we could go, and I presented you guys with three choices. And I've just been listening to Ken and Robin talk about stuff, which is one of my favourite podcasts. And it says, when you give players a choice, make sure that there's an obvious one that you want them to choose, because otherwise <laughs> they won't choose the right one. And obviously, if you make sure there's an obvious one they want to choose, they may well not choose that one, because... Out of spite, I was just going to say. Out yeah. of spite. <laughs> but no, my, my fault in that game is I really gave you three entirely clear options, because partly because I knew we were going to be playing that gig on this long weekend and I thought we would have the luxury of time to explore something so I was ready to improvise but you didn't go for either of the two that I thought you'd go for and went for (laughs) the weakest one which was basically taking her home to Mira where that was fine I had a plan uh, that kind of fits in with with the campaign so uh, when you are then touting for work well actually let's just cover one thing first I hand-waved the journey to Mirror. Yes. And at one point you felt, you said you felt you were like being railroaded to Mirror, which personally I took offence on because, because, did, because did I say I felt so going railroaded? off the rails. <laughs> did I, did I say that? Or did any of us oh, say wait, that? I'm, I'm, uh, something like that, I think. With, uh, I can dig it out of the recording if you want. <laughs> okay. I haven't heard and the you're recording. i to listen really, really carefully. Um, no, I can't really. I, but, you know, this was going way off the rails. But, yeah, I actually think it was an error for me to do that. I thought, well, we, you know, we can get... We're going to this adventure, which I have, which is about this book in this library. Let's just get there. But actually, maybe the adventure would have worked out... Well, it would have worked out entirely differently if I'd just rolled a few random 
encounters on the way there in the way you're meant to and maybe you might not have got to Mura at all but anyway so next time I'm not going to hand wave journeys I think as you've discovered the journey is just as important in this world and again you know listening to the guys from um, Janvingen when when Martin was talking about the fact that he wanted travel to be like going through the desert I think I should have done that so that's my first error I think in your defence, I would argue that because our group, you, know, you, me, and in tone, meet so infrequently and we are all running different campaigns, it makes it much harder to go slowly through that kind of step-by-step game. It's much easier to do that if you're meeting every couple of weeks. Yes. Yeah, so, that, is, that is true. Yeah, so but I wouldn't be feel months before you'd got to move I wouldn't um, feel bad if I were you, Matt, for that. No. But one of the reasons why I did that is because um, we're we're beginning to form a bit of an arc, which wasn't an arc that I imagined at the beginning of the scenario, but just (laughs) decisions you guys have made, um, particularly relating to, you know, well, especially actually to you personally and the um, Nazarene sacrifice. Yes. There's something forming there. And I thought, right, well, you know, we, we want this to be able to tie in with that arc. So basically my, my campaign idea was that, uh, there was going to be a library at the Weeping Matriarchy which had a book which was like an original volume or an you know, original text from the Nazarene Sacrifice which most people have thought was destroyed. Um, I called it the Soliloquy on... Oh God, it's gone out of my head entirely. Can you remember what I called it? <laughs> no, I can't. It's the uh, Soliloquy. Let's call it the Soliloquy. The Soliloquy, um, yeah, exactly. Uh, a soliloquy on sacrifice, I think, is what what it's called. A, solilo- uh, a soliloquy of sacrifice, <laughs> I think. Anyway, so there was this book. So um, that after a couple of pints. Was meant to be destroyed. There's meant to be no copies of it at all in the horizon. And you were commissioned by somebody to get it out of the library. Now, we given were. that you just made friends with a relatively high-powered individual within the Weeping Matriarchy... My assumption was that you'd uh, talk about about it with her, and obviously you were interested in getting hold of this book yourself. There was there was a really interesting dynamic that appeared there. There was there was me, uh, Yafet, desperately wanting to get hold of that book and keep it. There was yeah. or at least at least keep a copy of it. There was Andy, who from his Zelosian background was thinking Wanted that to destroy it. We shouldn't touch it, and yeah, or we should go and get it and destroy it as, as a heretical tome. Um, and then this woman, it never occurred to me for a second to go and ask her, oh, how do we go and break into this place to get this book? Thinking that she would just shop us straight away. <laughs> you know, so... Um, yeah, your, well, it didn't. Uh, that, that, I, I was convinced that you, you were going to do it. You did, in the end, go in a kind of using her to case the joint a bit. But, yes. Um, no, you... you in, I, I, so I, I had this book there to set up that dynamic between you and Andy. That's that's the reason it was going to be there. And I and I had this very sort of shady connection uh, uh, who was asking for it, that I wasn't giving that much away. And actually, you know, I was prepared to develop who wanted the book, depending on, on what you did with it. So, you know, if you'd, if it, if you'd got hold of a copy and the person that wanted it was wanting to destroy it, then uh, they'd be chasing you down. If you handed it over, maybe it would have given you a lead into something that teaches you more about the Nazarene sacrifice. So I know I was being particularly vague about who the client was, but there was a there was a woman that you were talking to who was sort of intermediary. 
And anyway, you broke in relatively easily. Some, you know, good plan. Dice always we had, went in your favour. We had a very um, good plan, I thought, yeah. And I thought, well, this might turn out to be a bit boring again. And then I was <laughs> where the last one had, um, you know, had been so boring that you'd gone out and got yourself killed and we didn't want to again. <laughs> Uh, so I thought, well, you know, we, we can spice this up. I have a big pool of darkness points. You know, I can effect a discovery here. I mean, we can make this, we can make this a desperate escape from the library with the book. Yeah. And that went wrong, didn't it, really, in a way? Well, it went badly wrong, because every time we managed to deal with the, the next set of reinforcements you sent, thanks to your bloody darkness points, you went and spent some more to bring some more reinforcements. I think yeah, you know, we, well, we kind of escaped about three times, only to get pinned down again. My learning from this one is I had resolved to spend all the darkness points I, I had, you know, to make it a big climactic final. And what you realise is that if I spend darkness points, you spend darkness points. Yeah. <laughs> so it gets into this escalation. I've always got more darkness points to spend. <laughs> and my resolution to resolve and, you know, to at least bring it down to maybe just a few darkness points in the pool I built up over the campaign that didn't work out so well well it worked out fine for me and i think it worked out in a way fine for you as players but for your characters you're a bit screwed yeah completely well it was interesting you know andy stopped to kind of like do a last ditch defense so tony and i could escape we we had our opportunity to escape i yeah in the same vein that andy couldn't see me captured i couldn't leave him behind even though we started to be uh, loggerheads a bit over this book so I went back to help him. Tony stayed to fight, and we all got, well, we're not shot dead, but shot to bits. You're all broken or critted in in relatively serious ways. And yes. In fact, uh, obviously, we're going to have to start the next scenario either with you guys in hospital or maybe even with you guys in prison. I've got an idea about where where that might go. Yeah. Yes. But then you know, fundamentally, you're probably not bounty hunters anymore. At least in the region of Mirror, there are issues about your ships parked in a station. You know, if I if I if I put you on a prison ship going somewhere else, we, we could be on a whole different arc. So I've got to think very carefully mm. about what the results are. So are you, are you suggesting that our Ishma Earth licenses are being revoked because of our arrest? Well, I'm not entirely sure. Again, this is one of my big one of the things I am really getting into with this system, the Third Horizon connection of planets, is that. There isn't any, you know, there's light speed communication, but light speed communication doesn't get you anything. So <laughs> I feel that what we should be playing here is lots of isolated communities. And I'm not entirely sure that the news of your arrest, although those of you who played in my um, campaign that, or, or in the scenario I run at um, Dragon Meat, that followed on. Yeah, and so there yeah. was an investigation. All these guys were a delegation from Coriolis that came to investigate the crime you'd done. They interviewed you guys in hospital, and I'll tell you about that when we when we do that scenario. So something has gone, but but whether your Ijma Earth license is revoked across the Third Horizon, who's to say? You yeah. know, I think it's a bit of a paper that you wave at somebody. They have no necessary way of checking whether it's up to date. It may well be revoked on Coriolis. But Possibly. We'll yeah. see where we go. But I guess if you're waving a piece of paper in one hand and a very large handgun in the other, that might be a bit more persuasive. They look more at the gun than the paper. You're right. 
it might not work on mirror you know you might be persona non grata on mirror i don't know i've got a, there's, there's a lot to think about before the next time we play yeah as um robert de niro playing al capone in the untouchables said i come from a neighborhood where you get further with a kind word and a gun than just a kind word <laughs> <laughs> well, that might be my motto from going on from now yes yeah, yeah. As in my character, not my character's motto, not my personal motto. <laughs> no, no, not your personal motto. No. Thank you. That's good to know. Particularly because in this country, guns are generally illegal. Largely, yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, good. Thank you for that update, Matt. So, I mean, we've banged on now for about an hour and a half. Yeah. Uh, so I think we probably ought to be drawing ourselves to a close. It's gone dark here whilst I've been doing this. I'm um, doing this in the dark. I haven't got up to put the lights on yet. I'm lit only by the red light, thankfully, the red light on my mic. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, good, good. Rel, have you anything else before we sign off? No, well, I have a challenge for you for our uh-huh, next okay. episode. Go on then. This Go is on. This is going to be a tough one. I want you to tell me all about trade across the horizon. Okay. Hmm. Have a read. Tell me what you think. I don't need don't need necessarily to give me any answers, but it's got me, uh, you know, a lot of what I've been thinking about stuff like this, you know, the lack of communication and stuff like that, and the slavery and locality is making me think. What is interplanetary trade like? Actually, we keep talking about freighters. We talk about pirates. What are they pirating exactly? Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, because I was talking as part of the Spectre Corsair campaign that the Zelosians didn't want to shut their borders because it would affect their economy and yeah. because it would affect their trade. So, okay, fair enough. Challenge accepted. I okay. Will... It's not really a question, though, is it? I mean, you know... You could it's not, I'm a... not offering you a... No, no, I'm not offering you a question. I just think that we ought to think a bit about trade. You could have given it a bit more punch, a little bit more oomph. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, I give you, you know, the syndicate. Are they all bad? I, you, I, yes. And you, and you tell me, tell me about trade across the horizon. All right, thanks. Well, I know what you know. You gave me a very closed question that could have resulted in a very short episode, and I'm giving you an open question that could spread spread over many, many episodes if we let it. Right, so okay. I think my question's better than yours. I think mine has got more punch. More punch, think, but actually, yeah. you know, no content. Well, it's your content, mate, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway. I think that's probably it from me for today. So thanks everybody. Thanks, Matthew. And goodbye until next time. Goodbye. And may the icons bless your trade across the bloody horizon. <laughs> there you go. I thought you'd like that one. I wanted to. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering whether you'd thought of one or not. Right, right. You have been listening to The Coriolis Effect, presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods, with music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Imagery from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface is code by Font Fabric.